Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church this morning. We are glad that you're here, and I hope that you've had a great week uh, leading up to uh, meeting together this morning and worshiping together. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them out and turn with me once again to the book of Genesis, and once again to chapter 42 as we continue our study of the life of Joseph. And if you've been with us over the course of this year, you know we've been looking at the first, or the, really the last half of Genesis. And uh, over the last number of weeks, we've been studying the life of Joseph uh, as we've looked at, uh, at Genesis. And you'll know that, that what we've learned about Joseph, just as a summary, is that he was hated by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. Um, but through God's divine providence working through a whole series of events uh, that took place in his life, Joseph became second in command in Egypt. He, he became the governor of the land of Egypt. And it was, it was during that time when he had been promoted to being governor that a great famine came in Egypt. In fact, it was so severe, it not only centered in Egypt, but it swept all the way through that part of the world, even up into the land of Canaan. Uh, where his father and where his brothers still lived. And as we noted last week, it was the severity of that famine that ultimately forced Joseph's brothers to travel back to Egypt in order to buy food. And it was there, when they came to Egypt, that their paths crossed with their brother once again, but they did not know it was their brother. Joseph, however, recognized his older brothers when they came, and, but he kept his identity secret from them. In fact, he spoke harshly to them. The Bible says he even accused them of being spies, and he threw them into prison. But he released them three days later, and he instructed them that if they were truly the honest men that they claimed that they were, that they could carry the food that they had come to buy back to their family in Canaan, but that they would need to return with their youngest brother, Benjamin. And in order to guarantee that they would return with Benjamin, they kept one of the brothers there, Joseph did, uh, as, as security to make sure that they would return. So they kept, he kept Simeon behind and had him bound and taken back to prison. So that's, that's really how our text ended last week as we looked at the first 24 verses of, of chapter 42. What I want to do is pick up this morning verse 25, and I actually want us to read all the way through chapter 43. It's a long text, but, but I believe that it is all uh, intertwined together. And so let's begin reading in verse 25 of Genesis 42. Hear the word of God. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks, his brother's sacks, with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain, and they departed from there. And, but one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, and he saw his money, and there it was, in the mouth of his sack. And so he said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is, in my sack. And then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, 
The man who is the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me so that I shall know that you are not spies but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead. And he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now, the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If I send our brother, if you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruit of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh and pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise. Go back to the man and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took that present and Benjamin and they took double money in their hand and they arose and went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. 
And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men. will dine with me at noon. And then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now, the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which we returned, which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. And when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sacks. Our money in full weight, so we have brought it back in our hand and we have brought down money other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys feed. And then they made their present ready for Joseph's coming at noon for they heard that he would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being. He said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. Now, his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and he sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and he wept there. Then he washed his face and he came out. He restrained himself and he said, serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and then them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. And then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's servings were five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather together freely in this country to be able to hear your word read, to be able to search out the meaning of the truth of the scriptures and be able to apply it to our life. We are thankful for this opportunity that you have granted to us by your divine power and according to your sovereign will. We acknowledge that this morning and Lord, we humble ourselves before you and ask for your blessings upon the reading of this word that you might give us wisdom and understanding. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, for just a brief moment, I want to refer you once again to last week's text. 
And the reason that I want to do that is I want to remind you of what we learned from it. Last week, what we learned as we looked at the first part of chapter 42 was that God will often use dark providences and he will often use severe mercies in order to reveal our sin and in order to lead us to repentance and to reconciliation with him. Now, that passage that we looked at, the first 24 verses of chapter 42, bring that out for us. God used the dark providences and he used the severe mercies of the famine that that overcame the land. He used those of the accusations against the brothers of being spies. He used their imprisonment for three days in prison. All of those things, God used those things in order to bring those brothers to confess their guilt and their sin of hating Joseph and treating him so poorly and selling him into slavery. And that's, that's precisely what happened. In fact, if you go back and you read verse 21 of chapter 42, you'll read that as a result of all of those things, They said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. They came to understand that everything that happened to them in Egypt came as a result of what they had done 20 years earlier when they had sold their brother into slavery. But what I want you to know is that God is not yet finished with these boys. He's not yet finished with these brothers. In fact... They have not truly come to a point of repentance of their sin just yet. And they have certainly not been reconciled to their brother Joseph. And so God, through Joseph, continues his pursuit of these brothers. And and as our text reveals to us this morning, though, he takes a different approach to his pursuit of the brothers in the passage that we've just read. It's a different approach from what we read in the first part of chapter 42. As a matter of fact, there God used his his severe mercies and his dark providences, but here we see God pursuing these brothers with a different tact altogether. In fact, notice verse 25. I believe verse 25 sets the tone for everything that I've read for you this morning. Verse 25 Joseph commands his brother's sacks not only be filled with the grain that they came to buy when they came to Egypt, but also he has the money that they came to use to buy the grain returned to them and placed strategically in their sacks. And I believe he did that so that they wouldn't necessarily have to get into those sacks until they had gotten long out of Egypt. Because you'll also notice that he gave them bags or supplies, provisions. He gave them snack bags to take with them on their way back to Canaan so that they wouldn't have to get into the grain. But then you will notice, you will notice that even though he covertly did those things, he still gave them the grain that they needed. He gave them their money back and he gave them provisions on top of all of that. Now let me ask you, does that sound like someone who is still angry with his brothers? Does that sound like someone that's looking for revenge and retribution? You see, many people have have wondered if Joseph is not still angry at them because he spoke so harshly to them and accused them of spies and threw them in prison. But I would suggest to you that what we read here in verse 25 shows me that he's not angry with his brothers at all. Now, some have suggested that this is a part of an elaborate test, that Joseph is wanting to see if his brothers will pass. After all, they had claimed to be honest men. What better way to find out if they're truly honest than to return the money that they were going to buy the grain with and see if they would own up to the fact that they had been given that money. On the other hand, I I see what happens here as a display of Joseph's love for his brothers. 
I see it purely as generosity and kindness extended to them. I believe that Joseph had no intention of selling anything to his brothers, but rather he had every intention of supplying them with everything that they needed. And if I'm correct, then what we know for sure is that such grace was undeserved grace. I mean, after all, when you consider what these brothers had done to Joseph by selling him into slavery and refusing to, refusing to hear his pleas and his cries for, for mercy from them, they certainly didn't deserve to have mercy shown to them. In fact, they deserved to have something much far worse than just being thrown into prison done to them. And Joseph, in his position as governor of the land, could have certainly meted out that judgment. He could have done anything to them. He could have had their heads taken off. But instead... Joseph extends tender mercy to his brothers. He withheld from them that which they deserved. And then on top of that, he gave them what they did not deserve. He gave them grain and grain that they didn't even have to pay for. And then he gave them provisions on top of that on their journey back to Canaan. And what I want you to know is all that's right there in verse 25, and I believe everything else from this passage falls from that recognition. Everything else in this passage really tells us how the brothers and how their father responded to that undeserved grace and to those tender mercies that Joseph extended to them. And so notice with me the first point on your outline because it's the first response that we really come in contact with in this text, and it is this. It's perplexity. Perplexity. We, we read that on their way back to Canaan, the brothers stopped for the night. One of the brothers evidently needed to feed his donkey. And so he got into the mouth of the sack of the grain that he had, and he gets something out. And lo and behold, right there is the money bag that he had taken down to pay for the grain that he had there. And he says, my money has been restored, verse 28, and there it is in my sack. And then Moses tells us something that might surprise us. All of the brothers, he says in verse 28, their hearts failed them and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? God has done something to us. What is it that he has done? That's an astonishing thought. And here's, here's why. This is the first time God's name has been mentioned by these brothers. It's the first time that they've ever brought his name into the equation. Remember, they had been brought to a point of repentance. They had been brought to a point of guilt, at least, we could say, back in verse 21. But even back in verse 21, God's name is never mentioned. Here, however, they are traumatized and they are shocked by the fact that they find that their brother's money has been returned. And it brings upon them a fresh awareness of the divine. And they have no idea what God is doing. All that they know is that they've got their grain and their money too. And that's not the way it was supposed to be. And, and not only that, but they also recognize that instead of just being accused of being spies, now they're going to be accused of being thieves as well. James Montgomery Boyce has an interesting take on this. I like what he says. He says, how difficult it is for unbelievers to fathom grace. In Genesis 42, he writes, we have the ultimate example of fear. It is the Fear of what is good. God was doing good to these brothers, returning their money. But because they were not yet in a right relationship with him, they feared even his goodness and turned to each other trembling. 
Along those same lines, I would suggest to you that over the course of my years in the ministry, I have more than once come across those for whom the barrier to faith for them was the fact that the gospel just seemed too good to be true. I mean, after all, if, if what you're telling me, preacher, is that the wages of sin is death, and if what the Bible means by death is not simply physical death, but spiritual death that accompanies it, and by the way, physical death plus spiritual death equals eternal death, and that is the death that the Scripture talks about is the wages of sin. And if that's what every single human being has brought upon themselves as eternal death, then is it really too good to be true to think that, that, that all God requires of us is to repent, to repent of our sins and to trust in Jesus Christ whom he has sent to be the one to bear the penalty of our sin upon himself? Isn't it really just too good to be true to think that that's all that God requires? There has to be more to it than that. Alistair Begg has written this. He said, What contemporary men and women cannot cope with is the idea that in the death of Jesus upon the cross, God did something for us, not on account of how well we were doing, and not because of the way that we had entered into religious activities, and not because of the country in which we were born, but he did it only on account of his unfettered kindness and generosity. And the reaction of people is there has got to be something wrong with this. For there is nothing free. And anything that is free probably is not free. And we ought to stay as far away from it as we can. Maybe that describes some of you. Maybe God's undeserved grace and tender mercies have baffled you. Maybe you are perplexed by them. And you cannot comprehend how God is doing what he does through his kindness. It makes you suspicious that there's got to be a catch somewhere. I want you to know the Apostle Paul recognized that and he actually asks a question if that is what you were thinking this morning. In Romans chapter 2 verse 4, he says, or do you despise the riches of God's goodness? Do you despise his kindness? Do you despise his forbearance? Do you despise his long-suffering, his patience? Because he says, do you do that not knowing, listen, that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Like those brothers, perhaps you have marveled at God's grace to you. Grace that you have not earned and that you do not deserve. Maybe you've wondered what God is doing. Well, loved ones, according to the scriptures, God is leading you to be reconciled. He is, he is, his kindness is not a trap. His kindness rather is a treasure that should lead you to reconciliation with him. Now, what I want you to notice is that our passage goes on to tell us that the brothers get back to Canaan. And when they do, they tell their dad everything. Well, they don't tell him everything, right? They didn't tell him. They didn't tell him that they'd gone to jail for three days. They didn't tell him that Simeon was still in jail. And they certainly didn't tell their dad about the guilt that they had from 20 years earlier of selling their brother into slavery. They were, significantly, they leave that part of the story out. They didn't tell him all of that. But then, as they're emptying their sacks, notice that verse 35, surprisingly, each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. The perplexity of the previous discovery is now manifesting itself across the entire family because now they realize every son had his money returned to him. 
And notice what Joseph said, excuse me, what Jacob says. Jacob sees what's going on, and in verse 36, he says, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. So while perplexity is the first response to God's undeserved grace and to his tender mercies that we recognize, there is a second response that I want you to know. We see it through Jacob, and the second response is this. It's self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. It's, it's interesting to me that Jacob immediately and pessimistically lists all the things that have gone wrong. He believes that Simeon's gone and Joseph's gone and Benjamin's going to be gone and everything's going to be gone. He just immediately assumes it's all going away. Everything is stacked against me, he says. But certainly his response was an overreaction because everything wasn't against him. In fact, if we know the whole story, which we do, we recognize God was not trying to do evil to Jacob and to his family. He was trying to do good to him. He was not trying to drive his family away. He was actually trying to reunite all of them in Egypt so that he could save them. That's the story. But Jacob can't see the story. He can't perceive that that's what's going on. In fact, Jacob is an interesting character because he is one who, as we have learned earlier in our studies, has already encountered God face to face back in chapter 28 at Bethel. He encountered God there and God spoke to him. And this is what God said to him in chapter 28. He says, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac and the land on which you lie I will give to you and your, and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then he says this, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. That was God's promise to Jacob. Not that he would never face opposition. Not that the circumstances in which he went through in life would always be easy. But rather what he says is no matter what you face, I'm going to be there with you. You're not going to go it alone. You're not going to be by yourself. I will be with you. But evidently Jacob had forgotten Evidently, that lamp that he carried with him because he had wrestled with the Lord at the river of Jabbok, maybe that lamp no longer reminded him of God's blessing upon his life. He evidently thought everything was against him, and he goes completely against what the Apostle Paul says later in Romans chapter 8. If God be for us, who can be against us? Jacob had forgotten that. And he, on the other hand, says everything is against me. What a strange way to react to God's undeserved grace and his tender mercies. But notice the self-centeredness goes on to be displayed again in chapter 43 when Judah attempts to convince him to allow Benjamin to go with him down to Egypt so that they could buy more food. Jacob asks in verse 6, Why did you deal with me so wrongly as to tell the man whether or not you still had a brother? Jacob is a piece of work. Everything's about him. Have you noticed? Everything that happens is all about him. And Judah says, what did you want me to do? He asked me, did you want me to lie? Now, it's here that Judah steps forward, if you'll notice in your text, and he offers himself as surety. He says, I will bring Benjamin back. And if I don't, if I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame 
forever. Now, that statement and that sentiment that Judah would offer himself in the place of his brother, that's going to become a key to understanding what takes place in chapter 44. We're not going to get there today, but hold on to that because we'll come back to it, the Lord willing. In the meantime, however, it appears that the intensity of the famine and that the lack of food and that Judah's guarantee that he will bring Benjamin back, those are the things that finally push Jacob over the edge. And he reluctantly agrees to allow Benjamin to go with his brothers back to Egypt to buy more grain and to face the governor of the land. But notice what he does. In verse 11, he says, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man. A little balm, a little honey, spices, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double money in your hand. Take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Maybe it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise and go back to the man and May God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. Simeon doesn't even get a name. He just gets to be the other brother in this whole entire equation. Maybe he'll release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Now, scholars really differ a lot with how to interpret everything that Jacob says here. There is definitely a ring of resignation to what he says. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. I do what has to be done. I'll suffer whatever happens as a result. But then there's also this prayer of hope for his sons where he says, May God Almighty, may El Shaddai give mercy to you in your dealings with the man who is the governor of Egypt. But what I want to center in on is the fact that Jacob wants to help that mercy out a little bit. He's got a little something he wants to help he wants to help those brothers. He wants to sweeten the pot. And here's how he does it. He sends a little balm and a little honey and a little myrrh. And, and, and oh, don't forget the pistachio nuts. And don't forget the almonds. We need to send those too. He attempts, he attempts to manipulate things for his own advantage by sending a gift. Now, some have, some have defended Jacob's Actions here is a shrewd and a wise move. But Stephen Cole has alerted us to the self-centered nature of it. Notice what he says. He writes, there is a deep-seated human tendency to pay our own way. We have trouble accepting grace. We have trouble accepting undeserved favor. If somebody gives us something, we feel the need to give them something in return. And so we often try to add to God's grace all sorts of human schemes to get what we want. But Cole writes this, God only works through grace. Listen, you and I don't always work by a grace. We work on the barter program. We work on the exchange. We like to think, well, I'll do some good things over here, and my good works will atone for some of the stuff that I did over on this side. I'll try to balance the scales out. And if my good deeds will outbalance the bad deeds, then God will smile favorably upon me. That's, that's some of the reason why we, why we engage in the good activities we do. Sometimes it's why we come to church. Sometimes it's why we put a little money in the offering basket when it comes by. We're hoping to, to push God over to our side and that maybe he will smile upon us. But what I want you to know is the Bible stakes a firm stance against that. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, while it tells us very clearly there in verse 10 that we are created 
as his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, that is the result. It is not the reason why we are saved. As a matter of fact, Paul says we can never be saved by those good works. We can never earn God's favor through those things. Rather, as Paul tells us in that same chapter, we are saved by grace through faith apart from works so that no man, woman, boy, or girl can ever stand before God and throw their chest out and say, look what I did, aren't you proud of me? That is not in any way how we push God into our favor. Now, to prove my point, if there was any thought that you thought that Joseph would somehow appreciate this gift that was brought to him, notice what happens down in verse 26 and 27. They brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed before him to the earth. And aren't you waiting for him to acknowledge that? No, verse 27, he just simply says, how's your father? Is he doing okay? You see, here's the thing. Joseph wasn't interested in pistachio nuts. He wasn't interested in almonds. Joseph was interested in a relationship with his family whom he had not had a relationship with for over 20 years. He was interested in there being reconciliation between his brothers and himself. He was interested in people. He was interested in the things that brought him joy was the fact that he saw his youngest brother and he was bringing them back together. So the two responses that we have witnessed thus far to God's undeserved grace and tender mercies are perplexity and self-centeredness. But there's one last one, and I want to highlight it for you. Notice the last point on your outline, it's fear. Now, in many ways, we've already identified this response because it's connected to perplexity. Suspicion and fear, they often go hand in hand. But specifically, I want you to notice what happens when the brothers bring Benjamin back down to Egypt. And, and you get this sense that Joseph was looking for them, and he sees them. And when he sees them, he tells his steward who is there with him, I want you to go back to my house, and I want you to slaughter an animal, and I want you to prepare a feast because we are going to have a meal there, and I want these guys to come. And he's speaking to him in Egyptian. Don't forget that. The brothers don't understand what he's saying, but the steward does because he's speaking in Egyptian. The brothers just simply realize all of a sudden we're being taken to Joseph's house, and that, they think, is not good news. In fact, they think what's going to happen when we get there is that this is all because of the fact that our money was in our sacks. We're in trouble. We're in big trouble. In fact, he says he's going to make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves, and he's going to steal our donkeys. As if the governor of Egypt needed these boys' donkeys. The NIV translates it this way. He says he wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves Take away our donkeys. These guys, they've moved past perplexity to paranoia. And they've adopted many of the same aspects of their father, who everything was about them and about him, and it's all turned against them. That's what they've done too. And so they go to the steward. They go to him. They say, look, man, we just want you to know we don't know how our money got back in our sacks. We just got home. There it was. We tried to pay for it when we were here. I have no idea. I'm, I'm faultless in regard to this stuff. And notice what happens in verse 23. The steward looks at them and says, chill out. He says, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. 
Now, there's a few interesting things here. Number one, you have an Egyptian speaking Hebrew to the Hebrews. And the first word out of his mouth is the word shalom, peace. Be at peace, guys. Your God, Elohim, that's the name that he uses. Elohim has given you treasure. I had your money. Now, if the steward had the money for the grain, where do you think he got it? Because the money they brought had been returned to them. So where was the money that the steward had? Where did it come from? I would suggest to you it only could come from one place. From Joseph. Joseph paid their debt for them. Joseph was the one who fed them. And here's what I want you to know. Those brothers who had been so paranoid and afraid of what was going to happen to them back in verse 18 find out that their debt has been paid and rather than being slaves, they are reunited with their brother Simeon. Rather than being attacked and overpowered, they're having their feet washed, they're being given water to drink. Rather than having their donkeys stolen, they're feeding their donkeys for them. In fact, the news keeps getting better. And our time has completely run out this morning, but I want you to notice Joseph seats them in the order of their birth. He sits them from the oldest all the way down to the youngest. And the brothers are sitting there going, now, how did he know? This is the governor. He, there's something, something's weird about this guy. He knows more about us than we thought he did. You think? And then he begins to feed them from his own table. Notice verse 34. He took servings to them from before him. Benjamin's serving was five times as much as theirs. We're going to come back to that, Lord willing, the next time. But they drank and they were married with him. Here's what I want you to realize. Rather than doing his brothers harm, Joseph had done nothing but show them undeserved grace and tender mercies again and again and again and again. And he shows this good to them out of his love for them and out of a desire to be reconciled to them. And it is that understanding that leads me to my sermon in a sentence, which unapologetically, I will say, rips off last week's sermon in a sentence as well. You can go back and compare the two, but they're both equally true, and here it is. In his great love for us, God often uses undeserved grace and tender mercies to reveal our sin and to lead us to repentance and reconciliation with him. Man, that's good news. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news that draws our hearts to him. And all throughout our study of Joseph's life, we have been drawn again and again and again to how he, how he get, opens us up to what Jesus Christ has done for us. And what I want you to know is Chuck Swindoll has done a a wonderful job capturing that analogy with this text. He says this, Joseph's life offers us a magnificent portrayal of the grace of God as he came to our rescue in the person of his son Jesus. So many come to him like Joseph's guilty brothers, feeling the distance and fearing the worst from God, only to have him demonstrate incredible generosity and mercy. Instead of being blamed, we are forgiven. Instead of feeling guilty, we are freed. And instead of experiencing punishment, which we certainly deserve, we are seated at his table and we are served more than we could ever take in. Now, if that don't light your fire, as my daddy says, your wood's wet. 
Here is the question that is before you this morning. How will you respond to God's undeserved grace and to his tender mercies? Will you continue to be perplexed by them? Suspicious of them that in some way God's trying to trap me. He's trying to, he's trying to pull one over on me. Will you become fearful? Paranoid. Thinking that everything is turned against you. And that you must make your own way. Or, or, or. Will you come to realize that there is a God who loved you so much that he sent his own son to be stretched out on a cross and crucified and murdered so that you, undeserving, might experience the grace and the forgiveness, the reconciliation that he desires. What it ought to do, instead of perplexing you and causing you to become self-centered and afraid, ought to make you say, what amazing grace is this? That he would love me this much? And what a humbling effect it ought to have on us that it ought to drop us to our knees and we say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for your inestimable grace and mercy and gift. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for being so good to us. Truth is, sometimes we sail through our days and our weeks and our months and we still sometimes just don't stop and think about how good you are to us. But your goodness is there for a reason. It is there to remind us of our absolute need of you. That apart from you, we stand unreconciled and facing death not just physical death, but spiritual and eternal death because of our sin. But in your great love, you have sent Christ to be the propitiation for our sin, to, to settle the accounts. And what that calls us is to stop working and trying to, to make you pleased with us so that that would be the way that we're saved, but rather to trust in Christ. Trust in what he has done. And then because of what he has done, we give our lives completely and wholly over to you to be used in any way you desire, to travel on any path that you put us on. So Lord, my prayer this morning is if there's someone here who does not know you in the free pardon of sin, they have never come to the place where they have trusted in you to save them, that today would be that day that your Holy Spirit would draw them to you. Pray that, Lord Jesus, that they would see you for who you are. And then for those of us that have been drawn to you, but Lord, we're still tempted to trust in ourselves and in our own good deeds. Help us 
Father, to be humbled by that, to be amazed by how good you are, and then to trust you even more. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.